This is episode 14, 2020 Hindsight. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. OMG 2020, right? This next episode, we get to talk about it, and it was pretty cathartic. There was a lot of laughs looking back at the year. My guest is Christiane Kinney, Celtic artist, pianist, singer, songwriter, and an entertainment attorney. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. Well, hello, Chris. I haven't talked to you in ages. Christiane Kinney, nice to talk to you again without you. drums playing in the background. Last time we saw each other, it was at NAM, and it was like, <laughs> in the drum department. We're like, what? Huh? What? Yeah, we should do a thing. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that was hysterical. I yeah. know. <laughs> I know it's been forever. Well, we talked a little bit about AB5. I don't know if that was, I'm sure that was after NAM. Um, yeah. Because we didn't get NAM this year. What a steaming pile of shit. Ugh, the whole <laughs> thing. Was. The whole thing. <laughs> this is about as politics as I'm going to get on the show, but good. <laughs> what? Like this proposition that's like, okay, let's reverse AB5, but only for the people it was meant for. Yes. Exactly. And not for any of the people who got screwed by it. <laughs> Honest to God, I'm still a little torn. We're, we wanted to vote in person, so we were actually going to go on the 30th to vote, and we've broken down all the props and where we were, where we were going to go with it. And that's the one that tears me up the most because it's not really attacking AB5 at the underbelly of it. Um, these no. are the companies that can afford to, you know, launch a mass attack, and so it's it's like. You know, my my gut feeling is that the labor unions have hurt so many artists this year that you kind of want to attack it at every angle you can. But at the same time, eh, you know, maybe they should be treated as employees. But everything else that came from that was illogical. <laughs> yes. Well, I can't believe that it literally it. I mean, I think it could backfire. So it's like you you reverse AB5, but only for the companies that were abusing Right. freelance in the first place and then it's like gives it, it'll just rile up the opposition because i you know they're trying to do this nationally too yeah so. and, and i mean there was a case that established all of this anyway so they were codifying the case in ab5 but did it in such a poor way that the exemptions were not properly dealt with and so we have agreed on exemptions for musicians, but I haven't heard anything or really been following what's going to happen with theater groups or, you know, I mean, there's so many people that were affected by this in the arts that that's really where it hurt. And I think unintentionally, you know, Uninten yeah, it's like the law of what is it? Unintended consequences. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, like, because the people I think who are supporting AB5 on a legislative level believe that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and I think 
that's the problem is it's complicated and nuanced. And mm-hmm. when you have freelancers who like, we want to set our own schedules. We right. don't want to. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And, and there are just times where it doesn't make sense. I mean, I think I, when I worked in the film business, I had like 13 or 14 W2s at the end of every year. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to get a real job, quote unquote, they're like, uh, I'm sorry, you can't hold a job. <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't understand. I work in the film business. And they're like, well, that's cool. Nope. <laughs> so as we were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think I pretty much was forced in the freelancer up, but I love it. I love being my own boss, setting my own schedule, my own rates, Yeah, you know, my own hours. Like it's freedom for me. I don't think I could, I don't want to work at the same place. You know, I've had a taste of both, and I actually am really enjoying being my own boss and calling the shots and having, you know, complete say over my clientele this year and everything that I do, everything I touch, um, things that I actually believe in to get behind. And, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of music tech work, uh, honestly, during the pandemic or things that are more company-based, less artist-based, but I've been working with a lot of companies that are very supportive of artists and want to support the artists and help kind of fill in this gap that's been created by the pandemic. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really nice to be able to just make moral decisions <laughs> about what you're doing and, you know, uh, yeah. just really set your own path. So, well, and so you were, uh, you were in another law firm. Yeah. So I, um, well, I was at one law firm for 20 years, um, and ran the entire entertainment division for a nationwide firm with 25 offices nationwide and probably would have lived and died there. But, um, but they ran into a lot of trouble with mainly with, um, departing shareholders and empty lease space. And so they couldn't, they couldn't keep it together anymore. They had to file for bankruptcy. So it was, it was kind of one of these, you know, safety blankets that I grew up with. You know, I was a baby attorney when I started with the same people and we had merged with another firm through that. But, you know, I was working with the same people for 20 years and, um, and it was kind of like a three week boom, you're done. Wow. Uh, Yeah. It was terrifying. Um, Absolutely terrifying. And I got several really nice offers. It was a nice competitive market at that time. You know, this maybe August of last year. Went to another firm. It was fine while it was. It was it was not the personalities that I was used to working with. Um, it was a little more <sighs> aggressive, a little less friendly than... Um, just the personalities I had been accustomed to. It was more one person calling all the shots as opposed to committees. And, you know, there can be a a big death by committee, uh, too, in law firms. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an either. So you walked into the, the stereotype of what most people would think of the movie version of law firm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And big personalities. um, Yeah. So I was doggy dog. I was the happy go lucky hippie in a, you know, (laughs) mad packed the firm environment. Environment. Uh, <laughs> and then when the pandemic hit, of course, you know, we had uh, four people at the time uh, in the music department and 
you know, most of our clients were going to be doing literally nothing for at least six months. So I was last in, first out, and they had to make massive layoffs. And, uh, and I was one of those. So, um, so, you know, I, <laughs> it was one of those moments where, and of course, Sean is in production. And so all the production work dried up overnight and we were both right. sitting there going, well, I guess let's take this opportunity to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. Um, uh, you know, like so <laughs> yeah. many did. And so, you know, yes. there was a lot of making puzzles and, <laughs> and a lot of writing. <laughs> uh, we did write a book. And some live stream concerts. I caught yeah. one or two of those. They were amazing. Yeah, yeah. We did, um, we did Dinner with the Kinneys every Sunday night for... Month. I mean, come on, on a scale of one to 10, how epic were your kids' eye rolls <laughs> at every time you did dinner with the Kinneys? Like, mom, oh, why are we God. a TV show right now? I know, I know. <laughs> you know, we started it more for, honestly, more for us probably than anything, but just as a way to connect with people because, you know, we were all cooped up and you know everybody was looking at four walls we had a lot of friends that were home alone you know just didn't have anybody to visit with them at all and so you know we did it as a this might be an interesting experiment and it'd be nice to catch up with people and then we kept oh, doing the loneliness it. Yeah, yeah for people i mean I think in one sense, it's absolute utter monkey chaos having children. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's like, huh, okay, I can have a hug. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was interesting seeing just this wide range of people that would check in with us, you know, every Sunday night and people that would text us and that we're watching it after the fact and just like, oh, I love how this week you guys did this or, you know, uh, you know, or they would send in requests, um, there was one Sunday night where it turned into kind of a jam session where all these people were requesting um, songs. And so we were just at the piano and goofing off. And so that became part of the part of the thing. It was like dinner and a show. And and we were <laughs> trying to encourage the kids to come up with, you know, something creative to do for the audience, like a talent show every week, which was probably <laughs> the death of it for them. But for us, you know, we, we were like, okay, well, art is gone. Music is gone. Like there's no classes, there's no class structure in distance learning that is supporting the arts in any meaningful way. Uh -huh. So we have to do this for them. And what could we create that gives them, you know, some way to materialize this, you know, some way to be involved and care that it goes well, you know, and so it all mm -hmm. kind of came together and we would come up with these interesting meals or interesting themes or, you know, we watched so many, we binge watched as a family so many things during the pandemic. So we would do like a Walking Dead theme night or we would do, you know, a community night and <laughs> all these different shows. We were all watching <laughs> The Office Night. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just it, it was a fun, creative thing that we did for a bit until it just looked like, OK, well, I think this is kind of leveling out as this is what it's going to be for a long time. And oh my God, the pandemic is going to last longer than a yeah. month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I kind of knew that going into it. I'm like, nah, yeah. this isn't, <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. Yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of people were on the hopeful end of like, yeah, maybe, maybe in like three more weeks, yeah. we'll be able to <laughs> three go more to the bar weeks. again. 
I still have friends. I still have friends that are like, well, maybe after the election, you know, we'll we'll get a real two week lockdown and then we'll have a handle on it. I'm like, well, we won't though, because you know somebody is going outside. Well, yeah, and sneezing all over everything. Hundred <laughs> percent. We missed the boat on that two weeks because everybody at this point is like, I'm not doing that again. And yeah, you know, we did travel a little bit this summer. We went to visit our aunt and uncle in Missouri, and those were the only people that we saw. And our kids' godparents in Sonora. Those are both very um, conservative areas in the country. So mm-hmm. Sonora, California, and then in Missouri. And so we went there. Don't you come around me with no masks. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, and we drove. I don't want to get your mask hooties. <laughs> yeah, and we drove to Missouri. Uh, we drove the whole trip. And so going through different areas and seeing how people would react. It was so polarized and so geographically polarized that you could see it. I mean, you you could feel it depending on where you were in a particular state. And yeah. And you will never ever ever be able to do a complete lockdown of this country. It just isn't no. going to be feasible and it's sad. <laughs> you know, I mean, we might have been able to do a a meaningful two-week lockdown, but yeah, that's not I don't think we there. have the social um distance to power. Yeah. To properly um to borrow the phrase from was it Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers where he's talking about cultures that have very high respect for authority and we have very high FU <laughs> like yeah. I think pretty much that's built into our our national DNA. So yeah. You know, tell someone what to do long enough and they're going to just do the opposite because it is, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it is sad because I think you're right. I think any effective lockdown that could have happened, people are fatigued now. And there's in terms of people management, there's that whole factor of human, human nature and how that works, you know? So, and you know, school is tough because I think the moment we send kids back to school, it's definitely going to multiply the numbers. But at the same time, kids and parents both are going insane oh my God. with online learning. <laughs> it's so crazy. I mean, we're, I consider us lucky because our kids, our son is about to turn 13 and our daughter's 11. And so they're kind of on, you know, they they've got things going and they've got their system in place. I basically have to make sure that they're awake to log in for their first mm-hmm. class. But otherwise, they're on autopilot now, um, yeah. for the most part. They're, they're, last year was very hard. Like or I say last year. It feels like it's been like 20 years, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> A <laughs> decade like ago, last fall. Ever for parents, yeah. especially. But in March, you know, March 14th, we all remember the day of the lockdown. Um, but when they shut down the schools and we all of a sudden were doing Zoom, it was, I felt so bad for them because, you know, they're just trying to figure out they had 20 different platforms and they'd have to go to all these different places to get their homework assignments. And then teachers wouldn't check them or they'd be like, you didn't turn it in properly. And they had to figure out all this technical stuff. And, you know, we were all scratching our heads and trying to still work and, you know, juggle everything. And it was crazy. And then at a certain point, it leveled out where we're like, okay, I think we all understand 
and and now everything's on Google Classroom in our school. And so, you know, they still have to go to every single teacher's, you know, thing and learn how to turn them in in a certain way. But they had, you know, tech nights where they showed the kids, like, this is how we want you to turn it in. And this is how, you know, Uh so they got far more organized. Last year, it was kind of like, you stop. And then all of a sudden, we had these wacky schedules where Ireland would have her classes from eight to 10, and she was done. And Zayden would have classes at like 11.30 and 1.45 and 2.20 and 4.30. And and so you were having to manage all these weird schedules. And then this year, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, it's just And hopefully someone else doesn't need the computer at that time. Yeah, we definitely, we had to upgrade our computer game in the house. And uh, we tried for a while to just make do with like iPads or different things that we had. But they they both needed Chromebooks to really pull it off. And I think a lot of... A lot of households had to do that, but um, but yeah. The Chromebooks have the unified login, so you can log in one time, and then you're automatically logged into all your things, which oh, that's nice. helps a yeah. lot because otherwise you're managing all these passwords and logins, and mm-hmm. kids can't get in. I mean, that's one of the things my wife does now as a librarian is help people get in to their accounts at the beginning of the year. So that part of this year was like yeah. bananas. Because, I mean, how do you do that when you can't, like, look over a kid's shoulder and, you know, they can't follow directions because it's like, (laughs) meh. Yeah, it's Brain broken. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it took us all a while to figure it all out. But, uh, but yeah, now it feels, I guess, normal. (laughs) Yeah. My daughter liked it better. I don't know. Well, my son likes it better. Well, he did like it better. He liked it better when it was like packet stuff, but he didn't like when the state made a law saying that teachers have to report at the like end of every week that says how many kids logged into Zoom for how many minutes. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden this semester, the Zoom load got ridiculous because teachers were mandated to make sure that kids were like staring at a screen (laughs) receiving on like in real time instruction from a teacher on a platform that would have been better used a different way. Yes. And it has other advantages. I mean, there's advantages to in person, but they're not getting used right right now correctly. It's just sort of like this whole thing's gotten shoved in. And I've heard from so many parents that are just like, oh my God, (laughs) the Zoom. It's like my wife's like, I know adults who can't sit in a Zoom for an hour and a half. hundred (laughs) percent. I was going to say that, like I've, I've had, I've (laughs) spoken at a couple music conferences, you know, during this time and you know, there's some that offer CLE. So I'll go ahead and attend the whole day and that'll be maybe a nine o'clock to four o'clock. If that, you know, seven hour and you can go ahead and get up and take a break or eat in between these things. That is the most exhausting thing that I've done in this pandemic is sit through a full day of Zoom. And, and you sit through depositions. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> I, I have two Zoom depositions. You do eight-hour courtroom days. And they're going to be hell, I can tell you right now. Um, they're going to be awful. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, and, and we're going to have an all-day mediation and a couple, you know, we and everything is virtual um, from a legal perspective, from the conference perspective. You know, I have a law student that's externing for me right now, and he has one day of law school that's from 8 in the morning until 8 at night. And 
I mean, you know, it's just, just completely wipes him out. Um, it's terrible. I can't even imagine um, how hard it is for everybody to learn this way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly thrusting us into a new era. <laughs> it is. The way that World War One. <laughs> Yeah. Sort of did. It's like, okay, into the future. Yeah, I remember um, early on, everybody would be excited, like, you want to Zoom? And now it's like, I'm a little burnt on Zoom. Can I just wear my pajamas and call you? And <laughs> Yeah, I know, because I was like, that's where I was at. I was like, okay, let's get some social groups together and do some Zoom parties. And that worked for about a week. And then, you know, some of my coffee shop friends, I'm like, hey, you want to Zoom? And they're like, no, yeah. honestly, I'm Zoomed out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like oh I know. zoom fatigue is a real thing <laughs> and it is it's more it makes you more tired i don't know why exhaust maybe it is it's, you just have to push that constant facade and i think that's what bothers me most about the school aspect it's like you know to to tell that they're engaged in class they're constantly face forward you know and there's yeah. no time to like there's no time to daydream there's no time to like stretch there's no time to nothing cognate in the background i think you i do know, know I teachers so. that do um you know physical activities during the class like uh, one of the law professors at pepperdine does dance breaks with her class or um, that's brilliant yeah and even uh zayden's science teacher will have them doing push-ups and pop-ups and things you know for 10 minutes of science um and i'm like oh that's great you know <laughs> because they're not getting any physical activity really you know i mean no. we let him skateboard outside but and what does the research say about exercise and brain development and yeah. brain capacity it's like you need that you need to oxygenate your bloodstream i yeah i don't know something's getting missed and i think <laughs> so a lot of it <laughs> so much is getting missed and and yeah and just you know hugging people and you know i mean i think we you know you and i both are very lucky because we you know are with our family and even though i'm sure everybody kind of wants to you know go in in a hole and be by themselves every once in a while when you're with the same people over and over it's it's very comforting to have family around you and this would be so yeah. much harder for everybody that's by themselves you know um it just breaks yes. my heart for people i mean it really has to be awful so i mean that was part of our dinners you know too was having some sense of community but uh but it's getting to the point where we've got to figure something else out it was interesting because um, early in the pandemic and when I started my own firm, I started representing a client that was doing some really cool VR stuff. And so I had to get an Oculus. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And and we would have cocktail parties in virtual reality. Um, and we all had characters, you know, that were attached to us, but we'd have, we had physical bodies. We could hug in VR and shake hands and, you know, and see really? people. Yeah. It's it's so hard to explain what it was. And it was, um, it was, so was that somehow better? It was better than zoom for sure. Really? Because I mean, you, you had a, I know it sounds strange, but yeah, we, so this was for, um, for one of the, um, approved multiverses for burning man. And so, um, so they did it in VR this year and there were, I think eight different groups, including my client that had licensed, um, 
licensed this and created a VR experience for Burning Man. And wow. so there was cool. a big community already attached to that. And then when everybody would meet up in VR and have these experiences and go through portals together and build worlds, and we had all these all these art installations and VR there, you know, it was, it was really, you know, it was the closest that I've experienced to community since this happened. And to be able to pull that off in VR is something that I'm still in awe of my client for. They just, they really nailed something special. Um, but yeah, it seems weird that you could interact with avatars and have any sense of community. <laughs> Like, really, I get how weird that sounds, but it was a really cool experience. Well, I think it's, too, because you can actually move around yes. um, your space, which is what's missing from Zoom. I yes. mean, I plan to have my physical therapist on my show at some point, and, you know, we basically, I redesigned my whole studio and the way I sit, because I sit at work a lot, yeah. and just around the ergonomics of sitting being absolutely terrible for your body. Yes. Physiologically. And so I can imagine just being able to kind of like have that openness in your, you know, you're looking around, you have your hands and your shoulders are open and maybe you're walking a little bit or you're standing in place, but you can move yeah. and you're not out of frame. So in also the focus isn't always three inches in front of your face. There's a wide open spaces element to that. I use a meditation app in VR um, that <laughs> this is this is one of those classic silly moments, but I hadn't used the headset, you know, since Burning Man, really. And so, you know, it had been about a month and I hadn't updated anything. So I, I really wanted to meditate last night. I was just feeling very stressed out and very, okay, I need to get grounded and I want to do this. And so I put put the headset on, got everything up. Um, the batteries were dead and the handset. So I had to like run and get batteries. And then it wasn't, uh, reading the guardian boundaries for me when I was trying to do it in, in the bedroom and then everything needed to be updated. And so <laughs> it became like <laughs> this very tense moment of God damn it. I just want to do it. And then the headset. I just want to friggin' meditate. <laughs> The headset need to be updated. It's like, you can't launch the app until the headset's updated. And so I'm like, I give up. I'm going to go to bed madder than I was before. <laughs> and so I, I finally got to meditate this morning. And, <laughs> and my sister had given me this bag of clothes that uh, she was getting rid of. And there's a bunch of workout clothes. And one of them was like these awesome hippie yoga pants that are tie-dye black and white with this black and white open tank top with a sun mandala on it. And so I just put that on because it was like loose and comfy, smells like patchouli, like my sister. And and so I just <laughs> meditation. I go into the bathroom and Sean's shaving and uh, <laughs> he looks at me, at me. He's like, oh, that really worked. And I'm like, namaste. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> pretty silly. <laughs> but yeah, something about the open spaces of VR and being able to meditate and see outside the four walls was very comforting. So, um, so well, yeah. I think that anyone who has access to nature is in a yeah. good place. And that was one of the things that L.A. County did wrong yeah. at the beginning of all this mm -hmm. was close all the nature trails. Yeah. Because people weren't distancing appropriately, but at some point you, 
it's weird because you can't trust people, but at yeah. some point you have to trust people enough to make them trustworthy. Like, right. and I, well, I live in Santa Clarita. So out here, luckily the Santa Clarita was like, Oh hell no, we're not doing that. We're leaving our open spaces open, yeah. which was great because I mean, they were, they were pretty packed at, at first sure. and then things kind of leveled out. And, you know, I think people needed that ability to get out and connect with nature mm-hmm. as a way to adjust and to ground and to adapt because I mean you're stuck in a house if you do have other people it's not necessarily always the people you want to be with mm-hmm. and it's not always enough space yeah. so you know I mean especially like you know talking about school it's like my wife's teaching upstairs in our bedroom <laughs> and my son's doing zoom downstairs and if my daughter was home it was like she's running around and trying to pull the computer off the shelf and there was nowhere to go right <laughs> so exactly I ended, up, I ended up finding a space behind our pool in our comp in our condo complex just where I could sit on my picnic blanket and meditate because that was the only space I had that was un. Yep. Interrupted. You know? A lot of my Zoom calls initially because my, my son decided he'd take the entire downstairs area for himself for Zoom because he's the preteen. And then my daughter had her bedroom. <laughs> um, my husband would work up here by our standing desk. Sometimes I would just do stuff in the hallway or I would go downstairs, but more in the living room area and away from Zay. But for a long time, I was just sitting on our patio because we have a large backyard and you know, I could breathe. I could just sit here and go, okay, we're going to zoom outdoors and <laughs> this is what, what it's going to be. Um, yeah. but yeah, there's the, the trip to Missouri and Sonora was so good for the mind and good for the soul. And a lot of that was because we could just explore the outdoors and, you know, have space and, uh, we didn't have to be around a bunch of people to do that. You know, it was just, there was more space and, you know, driving across Kansas, let alone, you know, you're just like, Oh, here's a ton of it. (laughs) (laughs) I've got nothing but space. Yes. (laughs) What do they do with all this space? Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I'm thinking of that song, Rain Makes Corn, Corn Makes Whiskey. (laughs) I don't know that one. Whiskey Makes My Baby Feel a Little Frisky. (laughs) No, I I don't know that one. (laughs) Country, yeah. Well, you know, and I think that might be some of the reason for the cultural divide, too, because the sociologists have talked about how, for the first time in human history, there are more people living in the city. Yeah. Than there are in the open spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it does affect your view on things a little bit. We're smack in the middle of the city. And um, yeah, it's it's a very intense. I don't know. I I don't enjoy it. Uh, (laughs) Now we're and we're in a good area We're you know, we're near the Grove and Farmer's Market. So our nightly walks tend to be around Farmer's Market where nobody was for the beginning of the pandemic. It was just a ghost town there. Um, Mm. And so we would walk. It was wide open and kind of that's our backyard. And um, now there's more people. But if we go late at night, nobody's really around. Um, I hate to tell people that. (laughs) Now there's going to be all these people walking on our walk. I'll be like, damn it. (laughs) Best kept secret. But um, 
But yeah, you kind of have to find these places where you can. Hey, you I can, might drive yeah. half an hour to 45 minutes to <laughs> go park at the Grove and yeah. take that walk. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. And yeah, we were at the start of the of the riots and, you know, all of the pandemonium right. there was, you know, right there at our intersection. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of intensity in the city, um, a lot of. Yeah. frustration seeing people not wearing their masks properly or not wearing them at all and you know all of the nasty memes and videos that went around on social media of all the all the karens as they call them or people you know complaining about because if it. you have a problem with someone yeah you should show them by posting a nasty God. meme <laughs> i know and <laughs> i feel like what's that guy with the red hair who pretends to be various versions of uh <laughs> Like, he's like got the yoga shirt on. He's like, you know, when I'm upset with people, I do the only spiritual thing, which is get really passive aggressive. <laughs> I know. Social media was kind of our saving grace at the start of this. And then it has become our absolute destruction toward the end because it's yeah. so polarizing and, you know, relatives and friends unfriending people over politics. And then, it, you know, mm. it got so nasty with the mask or anti-maskers and everything, you know, I mean, yeah, I'll say we can't we can't just post puppies and cats and you know funny things anymore it's just well, and then people this... are stuck inside and the only thing they have to do is face complain yeah and it... yeah and so i think that people who otherwise would you know get distracted enough by work or life or okay let's let it go you know something to shake it off is yeah. there's no venue change yes yeah, exactly. So all that angst, we're stuck inside, we don't know what's going on, we're scared about the world and there's a deadly virus or maybe there maybe it's a hoax and blah 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 all this stuff. And all you have to do is like get sucked into these rabbit holes of like whatever oh, yeah. bent you have, just go ahead and get sucked into the very worst that the internet of humanity has to offer yeah. in terms of just, you know, <laughs> Echo chambers. I mean, that's that's I, I not to tangent too much because you're in law, you probably understand this. It's like Google and Facebook and all of the algorithms that are built by those companies are basically creating a little bubble yeah. for you and whatever you search for, whatever you like, whatever your friends like, that's what you get shown. So your opinions, your worldview gets more and more codified and reinforced by mm -hmm. the fact that the machine is showing you what it thinks you like. And right. so, ergo, you think that that's what is true or that's yeah. what people think because you don't know any better because you're not you're not at work mixing with other people you're not getting other outside opinions you know from people who are different from you for better or worse right you're not yeah. seeing that there's a wide world out there of people with you know human opinions it's like no everybody i know thinks this <laughs> yeah oh 100 percent. yeah it's uh, it's crazy it really is <laughs> it really really is uh yeah i mean i we've We've tried to find ways that we can avoid <laughs> social media or mm -hmm. just, you know, try and find the positive aspects of it in all of this. But it's getting harder and harder. Um, now, how just to just to change the subject yeah. a little bit, but not too much, like how much are people going to want to have a huge party with lots of music and live bands and tons of alcohol when this is all done? <laughs> Oh my God. I That's know. all I keep thinking. People are saying like concerts are going to die and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking 
the moment this is over. Yep. Maybe this is the chance where people actually put a value on music again. Well, here's hoping, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I definitely think that um, there will be a day when it goes back and there will be more appreciation than than there has been in a long time for art in general. I mean, yeah. for all art, Broadway being shut down, all of, you know, the fear, I suppose, is that artists have had such a hard, hard road this year. And it started before the pandemic, you know, with AB5, where some people were already bowing out or not being able to work or trying to figure out how they could work in this. That's um, true. You know, and so this has been a crap year for so many artists. And I already know, you know, I mean, even clients that are like, okay, well, this isn't going to go back to normal for years. So I'm going to go back to school and do this, or I'm going to do mm -hmm. that, you know, so there are people mm -hmm. that are kind of pulling back and looking at, well, what can I do in the meantime? Um, you know, and <laughs> there shouldn't be a yeah. meantime where we have this dearth of creative expression. Uh, we have to find some workaround or some way to express ourselves and to be creative or you really get into this destructive model where yeah, kind of where we are. Where, where we are. I mean, we were already headed here where yeah. it's uh, my dad calls them Thang. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google um, yeah. have become the new power brokers. And what the strategy has been, they were always going towards streaming. And yeah. as far as I understand, it's like, Okay, buy up all the catalogs. Anything that's new, that's good enough, then buy that too. And then be basically like copyright holders and just make a little bit of money from large amounts of like, okay, if we own it all, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's everyone's just paying 10 bucks a month for music. It's like, all right, well, but we own the whole catalog. So that times a bazillion equals a bazillion. And that's how the business is done. And so there's a real danger there of... Like you said, artists not being able to support themselves, it's already happening. Mm -hmm. uh, AB5 has cut artists' livelihood. I want to ask you about that more. But the uh, thing I wanted to bring up before that was um, the Blurred Lines lawsuit. Mm. Because I think that sets a terrible precedent. Yes. Um, I mean, we'll have to explain for the audience what that was <laughs> in case they don't know. But yeah. basically, I you know, it sounds like, from my understanding, is, is that basically it's like, Musicians and content creators are now wondering, if I write something, will I get sued for accidentally writing something that sounds like something that was once created? Right. That's not <laughs> actually that, but it feels, feels like it. So that um. is largely what that was. And yeah, I mean, there were there were so many things wrong with that. But but yeah, the concept of having to worry about infringement for something that is inspired by or, you know, has a vibe like this, you know, I mean, we're getting, we're getting a little ridiculous. Um, when you, <laughs> when you count the number of notes and the number of chords that you have an option to write, um, there's only so much, you know, and there's, there's only so many possible combinations, only so many possible combinations. And that's really, you know, there were some talented musicologists that wrote about the blurred lines decision and explained why this is, a dangerous precedent and yeah i mean that's always going to be the case so the, the short story long is that pharrell wrote a song yes in the style of yes marvin gay mm -hmm. 
and did such a good job of making it sound like it that he got sued by Marvin's estate, right? Well, actually, people forget that it was Pharrell and Thick that sued the gay estate. So Marvin Gaye's estate came up and said, hey, um, we feel like you're infringing on Marvin Gaye's materials and we think you should pay us something or work something out. So wait, 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 Pharrell and Thick sued the gay estate. They Why? sued them for declaratory judgment, saying we're not infringing. And then there was a counter. Oh, so, okay. So, so that is one of the weird things that gets lost in translation is they tried to nip it in the bud. And that's pretty normal for um, IP litigation is, you know, the person that's accused of infringement, if they feel like they have the higher ground, would file for declaratory relief, basically saying we want you to declare that as a matter of law, this is not infringement. Um, okay, so let me help the audience here. Yeah. IP, intellectual property. <laughs> yes. <laughs> IP. All right, go on. <laughs> that means like the song that you wrote and you do copyright thingy and then that gives you yes, intellectual property. It's like as good as a stock paper. <laughs> yes. So intellectual property being people's creative works. <laughs> Yeah. And so the thing about past lawsuits like this is that, mm -hmm. you know, the one of the most classic was Vanilla Ice mm -hmm. versus and Queen sued him because the baseline for Ice Ice Baby sounds basically exactly like the baseline for I don't know what the correct title for that song is. I thought Maybe that was the one from Under Pressure, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Under Pressure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh in a quite comical turn of events, Vanilla Ice was able to win. If I correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something like, well, their baseline goes do 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 and mine goes dun 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 <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was how he skirted the lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, of course, kind of a, a mistrial of justice, perhaps, but it didn't have any dire consequences for the music industry. It probably helped the rap industry actually become a voice, um, ironically. <laughs> but this lawsuit is exactly the opposite. Well, and, and a lot of times things are lost in translation for the jury because the jury doesn't know these things. And they they do have to rely on this battle of the experts. And... You know, there's, uh, and, and it depends also on how you registered. You know, if, if you're registering something as a PA work, a work of performing arts, which is protecting the underlying song, so the melody, the chords, and the lyrics generally, or you're registering a sound recording, there's going to be different aspects that are protected or not protected. I think that was a loss, as I recall, in Blurred Lines. They were listening to recordings, but I think they were dealing with a PA, and I don't remember offhand. But I know in one mm -hmm. of the recent IP cases, that was completely lost in translation because, you know, you might have a baseline that's in a sound recording that had nothing to do with the original work that was registered with the Copyright Office, and you're suing based on what was registered. So, right. So know. in other words, when you file a copyright and say so you write a song and we're looking at exclusively music, there's a hundred other kinds of copyrights. Right. But with music, there are two ways and some people do both, but Ooh. some people go the poor man's route, which is like, oh my gosh, $35 of filing. Uh, yeah. That gets expensive when you write hundreds of songs. Well, so well, no. you, you, technically you should copyright the song for its lyrical, melodic, and chordal content mm -hmm. as the PA, performing arts. Right. Um, and then... When you record it, like if I recorded a record for you, 
and that final, we'll call it a CD, Mm-hmm. <laughs> to be quaint. Yeah. Um, that final sound recording is actually, it's a copyrightable thing too. So yeah. let's say I copyrighted the sound recording because I paid for everything. Then I would own that sound recording as a label, for example, even if even if you wrote the song and right. the words and the melody and things like that. And that's why those two things exist. But technically you can kind of sort of copyright the PA if you copyright the sound recording yes. and you can copyright the song. And then of course... The sound recording rights, if they weren't claimed by anyone, could be sort of up for grabs in a certain way. But that's where you come in, right? As right. an entertainment lawyer, because things can and do get murky. Well, and a lot of times when you're looking at old school songs and, you know, you're bringing into, uh, well, how was Marvin Gaye's stuff uh, registered? You know, if it was not registered as the sound recording, well, it's going to be harder to protect a groovy bass line or a groovy guitar lick or something that sounds similar to something else if that wasn't part of the underlying song. Well, that's itself. the thing. They didn't sample. No. So some artists will take a drum loop right. from Funky Drummer and they'll use that underneath their track and sing to it, right? Sure. And then that's called a sample. Mm-hmm. So that's a different kind of copyright clearance right. than if you, let's say, played the same notes in the bass line. Then that gets a little bit murkier, although that's also copyright infringement. Versus if you, in the case of Blurred Lines, the rhythmic content, melodic content, all the things you would base a song's structure on that makes it the song that actually defines it as the song. Yeah. They were all different. Yeah. But he used like a cowbell and he used a, a bass line that was syncopated and he used like the vocal hey, hey, hey's and all those kind of things, yeah. which made it feel like yep. Marvin Gaye. and. He was very careful to not. I mean, basically, Weird Al does this all the time when he writes his original material. It's like he takes the style of, mashes it up, and goes, "Okay, this is how you make a song that sounds like, you know, um, uh, Jane's Addiction, right?" And he'll just change it around, mix it up, and then shake it up and write a parody. People do it in film all the time, and there's people whose jobs are to listen to sound-alike recordings and make sure they don't sound too much like, or that they've taken too much of it, but. You know, I mean, you'll if you watch sitcoms like uh, the 30 Rock was very good at this. We we, we watch 30 Rock a lot. Um, but, um, you know, Tina Fey's husband is amazing. He's an amazing musician and does all of the underscores for that show. And um, and, you know, he'll mimic things that you recognize immediately like, oh, I get what he's doing. He's playing with right. you know, this and it's making me think of this other thing. But he's not borrowing the melody or he'll reverse the melody line or he'll right. play with the chords a little bit so it's similar to you know so i bet you right now could probably write a song that sounds like an homage to happy birthday but yeah. isn't oh 100%. you know people do it all the time yeah um yeah yeah and especially in film and and that's kind of known and you know so it does it sense it sets a dangerous precedent because law is based on precedent and yeah. so judges and juries rule based on prior cases and so now the question is if i write a song today and it happens sounds like something i may have never even heard does someone now have grounds to come in and take everything i earned right yeah and it it really didn't change the law it was the jury's interpretation of how the law played out in that case but it just it wasn't a good decision um, <laughs> it was, and there's no going back now. I no. mean, unless someone wrote a new law that counteracted it, right? 
Right. I mean, the, the, the law of copyright infringement is the law of copyright infringement. It's been the same for ages. But, you know, when you have these situations where you're dealing with inverse ratio or all of these different measures that help a jury figure something out, um, yeah, I mean, it just does. It becomes a very dangerous precedent for people to... So here's an interesting interpretation. So yeah. the jury of your peers, which I don't know, even applies to civil suits, mm-hmm. but like... Should, what if that meant that you'd had to be a jury of all musicians? <laughs> I think that could have solved this problem. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I don't think it'll ever happen, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. And, you know, how would you get them all to show up on time to the court case? Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to show up for the start of trial. <laughs> I watched, I'll put it in the show notes. I watched a fantastic interview yeah. with Pharrell. At Rick Rubin's house. Mm -hmm. And Blurred Lines did come up and he apologized. He said, you know, I really dropped the ball. Uh, Stevie Wonder at the beginning of this gave me the advice to get a really, really good musicologist because he said juries Mm -hmm. don't understand this stuff. And he's like, I thought we had a slam dunk case and I failed. And I feel like I failed you all. And, you know, Rick was saying, this is scary. Mm -hmm. We don't know if we can make music without the fear of arbitrary reprisal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I mean, how many more hits do people need for <laughs> you know their, their creative flow before people just give up? And, and it's hard enough to make a living at it now. I mean, it used to be that songwriting was a good profession. You could write for someone else and they can make it big and it, yeah. you would receive some good money for that. Now it's like, how many... How many streams on Spotify do you need to make to have a thousand dollars? I don't know. I think I did the the math on uh, what was it? Five hundred thousand plays. Would it, we did a single and it cost like eighteen hundred dollars? Yeah. I think to make the money back on that, it would have taken five hundred thousand plays. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know it's it's absolutely crazy, and so many artists were supplementing you know, really getting by through touring income. And so once that got gutted with the pandemic, you know, there's, there's a lot of catalog sales going on for high-end artists. So that hasn't gone away, but you know, I mean, people are literally selling their royalties in the future so that they can have Mm. cash now and live their lives. Um, You know, it's, it's one of those intense things where, you know, you're just screaming uncle and going, all right, let's get back to normal. And <laughs> here, there's no normal left. It's, this is normal now. Yeah. Well, and it's like, how are we going to change it going forward in a good way? Um, like what is the, where is the innovation? Where is the sixties revolution, you know, of yeah. uh, Woodstock, you know, what is our Woodstock? Yeah. How do we get that back? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because obviously tech is filling in some holes, and there are interesting things happening in VR and in these. You know, uh, I mean, tech can fill in a lot of gaps, but generally with an absence of community and emotion and that connection, that spiritual connection and energy flow and exchange that you get, you know, between an artist and an audience. Um, that's that's going to be very, very hard to to reiterate in any way other than just live shows. Mm. 
and streaming doesn't do it. And, you know, I mean, we, we're all trying, but, um, I think, I think the sadness and the depression that's setting in from the four wall syndrome is only enhanced by the fact that we don't have those opportunities right now to really connect one-on-one to experience art and music and theater and Broadway and all of these things live, you know, and people right. get a blip or a sense of it. Like when Hamilton started streaming on Disney and people were like, awesome, I'm just going to play it nonstop 24 seven for the rest of the year. <laughs> right. Well, and there's that too. I mean, there's that, how can the independent musician compete with Disney Plus. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I could just stay in my jammies and watch something great <laughs> because I don't have to go anywhere now. And it is, it's kind of a dystopian view of the future. I mean, I think we're either going to become uh, Ready Player One yeah. or Idiocracy. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one's happening first, but we're on our way to either, right? Yeah. You know, and I don't think we have to be, but I could get very pessimistic very fast. <laughs> And I don't have any bonbons nearby, so I will not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Most depressing podcast guest ever. (laughs) 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 I'm not going to get political. And then we've talked about AB5 and social media. (laughs) I think we've managed to not. Of the music industry. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've managed to not cross any uh, any blurred lines um but yeah i mean so what what was ab5 about and what happened with that why i mean because this has to be underscored it's the first time i've seen bipartisan support on facebook from a random sampling of friends because i have diverse friends yeah republicans and democrats that say this sucks we need to get rid of this right and the legislator was completely tone deaf to it for the longest time. And, and people are out of things work. Things were agreed to in March. So, yeah. Well, and it's was... kind of like the legislator's on bigger things right now. Yeah. I mean, we kind of shifted gears, you know? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it kind of went to, oh, this is an emergency. We need to deal with this, too. Oh, well, there's a lot of emergencies right now. You know, every month right. something new. Um, when at a time when people need to work freelance as a way to make ends meet because they're at home and they can't get to work or the job options have vanished. It's kind of a weird timing for things too. Right. Um, but can you explain what AB5 was and why it put musicians out of work? Yeah. So AB5, it's a state statute that was based on this California Supreme Court case called Dynamex. So Dynamex actually had come out and the court had held that across the board, most workers should be identified as employees. Um, And that the burden of proof for calling them an independent contractor is going to belong to the hiring entity and you have to go through these steps. So the court was basically saying there's a vast amount of concern over employee misclassification, calling people independent contractors so you can avoid giving them benefits and, you know, following wage laws, Um, which is all fair and true, right? So in other words, with the Dynamex company, people were driving cement trucks up and forth to the mine and they were doing it lots of hours a day. And the company had hundreds of trucks and they were saying, no, you're all independent contractors. You get a 1099. We don't pay you benefits. You own your own truck. Like you have to do this if you want to work for us. But right. So like clear abuse of 
the classification. Right, exactly. So AB5 was trying to codify the Dynamex case. And so they had this ABC test for, you know, misclassification to try and figure out if a worker should be an employee. You know, and one of the aspects was, well, is the individual free from the direction and control um, in fact and in the performance of their duties. And that's often the case for looking at independent contractor work. So if an employer is saying, hey, I need you to show up now, like for Uber and Lyft, which is what this was designed to really circumvent, right? Um, okay, you're going to do this shift and here's how you're going to do it and here's how you're going to get paid and this is what you're going to do and this is where you're going to drop them off. And if this person calls you first, you're going to pick them up and then you're going to do this. So they're, they're directing you know, they're controlling how it's performed for the most part, right? And then one of the things was whether or not the service that's being performed is outside the usual course of business for the employer. So that's where they were saying with AB5, well, yes, you can still hire a cleaning service and not have to worry about whether they're an independent contractor or not. And not have to get a payroll company. Uh, business. Yeah. Or a plumber. So those were exceptions, right? Um, and then if the individual was customarily engaged in an independently established trade of the same nature of the services involved. So it it became, they, they tried to do some exemptions um, that seemed logical in their heads for AB5. And the exemptions just made it worse and more confusing because <laughs> everybody, you know, read this thing and said, wait a minute, this isn't sufficient. You know, I mean, journalists had an exemption, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah. If you're, if you're a photographer and you take photos for various newspapers, right. You can only take 20 photos. Yes. Yeah. Um, were, before you are misclassified and there were all these limitations that made no sense pragmatically. And with musicians, I mean, it was a real mess because almost every musician, that's going into the studio would be an independent contractor unless you're dealing with, you know, with labor musicians or people that are doing high-end stuff. But for all of the independent artists that were trying to record, every time you would bring somebody in for some quick work-for-hire session, um, they'd have to be an employee, technically. Right, like, you're not in my band, you're not employed for my studio, but I want to hire you to come in and play a tin whistle yeah. on this one song that I wrote because I I wrote this one song out of every song I've ever wrote. This is the only one with a tin whistle in it. Mm -hmm. And you happen to play tin whistle. I'd like you to come over and play for two hours, please. Yeah. Can you come record at my studio? Yeah. Under AB5, I would have to get a payroll company and make you my employee in order to do that and go through all this red tape that basically made me kind of throw up my hands and go, well, I think I'll yeah. just pull it on a keyboard, you know? I don't need a tin whistle that bad, right? <laughs> I know. You're like, I'm just going to learn the tin whistle myself. And right. And a lot of pain in the butt effort here. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, it got ridiculous. And this, and this murky language of, like, not directing you. Okay, so I'm a music producer. That's what I do. You come in, I give you music, yeah. and you play it. And I say, oh, could you play that a little bit? Play the section a little louder. Now, all of a sudden, I'm your employer because mm -hmm. I told you to play louder. Right. Or softer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... What? <laughs> it, it was crazy, you know, and there, there was an exemption for loan-out companies, but 
it was fitting a, a round hole in a square peg. It wasn't perfect. Um, it was it was kind of a fallback position for a lot of people to go through their loan out and try to work through that exemption. But there were still, I think there were eight different things that they had to try and do to make that work. And it wasn't always perfect. And A loan out is when, if I'm a professional kazoo player, <laughs> if I want to form an LLC yes. or a corporation so that... My corporation can get paid by you to play. Yeah. You pay you pay my corporation 50 bucks for me to play the kazoo. And then that corporation then employs me. Exactly. On a salary to be a professional lifetime kazoo player. Um, I think I make a dollar a month doing that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Benefits yeah. are great. The, the employee <laughs> obligations to the loan out company. Um, and then they'll sign an inducement letter saying, yes, I'm going to abide by this and get paid by them. And But see, so. Chris understands all this stuff, which is why you would hire someone like Chris right. <laughs> to represent you because you could try and learn it yourself and then your brain might explode and then you'd have to hire someone to yeah. clean it up. It's been a lot of brain exploding this year with AB5 and Pandemic <laughs> trying to figure out who's who's on first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the roots. Yeah. So you're an attorney and you went to Pepperdine mm-hmm. for law, and but you're also a musician right. as well. I am. And which came first? Oh, definitely musician. I, uh, I started playing when I was three um, by ear. So I, uh, I had been, wow. my parents took me to see a, uh, production of Annie. Um, it had just come out. And so I fell in love with it. I mean, you know, little spunky, redheaded spitfire orphan conquering the world. And so, by the way, Christiana is spunky and redheaded as well. I am a spunky redhead. So I, I was like, yeah, I like what you're doing. And <laughs> So, um, so yeah, I went home. We had a little, just a little organ or something. Uh, I don't really remember. I was three, but I'm told that I just started picking out the melodies for all of the songs from Annie when we got home. And my parents just looked at each other and said, maybe we should get her lessons. And so I I really, I remember that and this organ concert that I saw at a church that were the impetus of my interest in music. And I saw this concert with our old church organist, Marvel Jensen, and she was playing one of the largest pipe organs in the world at the time. And all this beautiful classical music on the organ, and it blew me away. Was that Boston's organ? No, it was actually it was actually in Santa Ana, um, at this old Baptist church that doesn't even exist anymore. But it was wow, it was huge and gorgeous, and the pipes built into the walls and just stunning. And and I was like, I want to do that. So when they got me the lessons, there was this nun. She was um, part of the nunnery at St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange, where I grew up, and so so. I took lessons from a nun. You grew up in a nunnery? Well, I didn't grow up in the nunnery, but, you know, I was born at St. Joseph's and lived in the neighborhood. My mom worked oh. there, so I was there all the time. And so there is a nunnery at St. Joseph's. <laughs> and so I took from Sister Ava Lorette, and she taught organ and piano, which is what they were looking for. So um, wow. 
I was going to start on an organ, excuse me. And, um, my legs were still too short to reach the pedals. So, (laughs) So she said, why don't we start on the piano first and pointed over to the piano. And I said, okay, but I really want to do this. And, and then I fell in love with the piano and never really looked back. Well, you were exquisite at piano. It's a really great tone on your latest single that you sent me. Thank you. Yeah, that one, where did we record? I think that was on David Peters' piano in his living room. I love David Peters' piano. Yeah, it's awesome. David Peters is awesome. He is. (laughs) I forgot we shared that connection. Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah, so we recorded that at his house. And uh, my girlfriend, Devin, who, uh, well, right before this, she was touring with Katy Perry. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so wow. so she uh, bestowed upon me her graces and playing guitar on this track. And who else? Christo did a very comprehensive drum track, my longtime drummer, Christo Polani. Um, and then we stripped it down because uh, we just really wanted it to be very chill, folksy. You know, it just felt like mm-hmm. it need a lot of drive in the drums. I always wanted this bump, bump of heartbeat in it. But um mm-hmm. But yeah, I wanted to keep it really simple. I brought in my friend Don Teschner to do some strings. I did some string patches, and there's kind of a blend of that. But yeah, we kept this one really simple. David, by the way, has a studio built into his house. Yeah. And so he had the front rooms, beautiful studio, beautiful microphones. He does amazing folk recordings. And he used to throw house concerts, like where he'd actually live stream, like studio record the house concerts. And they were incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They were amazing producer. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I remember he was picking my husband's brain on filming the house concerts and everything. And how should we go about this? And Sean gave him advice on GoPros and things. And like the next time we were over there, he had the whole house just geared up with cameras everywhere and everywhere yeah you just tweaked it out we're like oh okay well (laughs) take it nice and go all the nine yards (laughs) yeah um you know what would be really nice at this point is if i could hit play on your song and we can take a listen to it and then we can talk a little bit about the creation of it yeah let's do it Some say he shouldn't worry 
He knows he's got to work and catch the moon for his sweet when we recorded last year everything was recorded and it just needed to be mastered and my good friend Jamie Hill who is just a dream you know uh, when I got laid off with the rest of the world in March (laughs) you know I was just like oh yeah I've got he was asking if I had any music projects in the works I said I have two songs they just need to be mastered and then 
we had a couple things that still needed to be worked on or a few instruments recorded or vocals. And, um, he's like, well, I can do the mastering for you. And so he, he just, wow. he knocked it out and, uh, it sounds amazing. Yeah. It was so cool. And I have another one that I haven't released yet, but well, at some point, uh, <laughs> you know, but yeah, these were songs that I had written a while back. My mom had written this book for me and my sister. So it was one of those very gut-wrenching processes for her that we didn't know about until she gave it to us on whatever day. I, I think she gave it as a gift at Christmas time for us. Mm. And it was the story of her life, but it went back through wow. you know, relative stories, different things that happened in our family and, you know, some very intense emotional things. But, you know, I was reading some of the family stories that were in the book. And this one in particular was the impetus for me to do a grouping of songs about the family. And this one was about my aunt Ernestine, who actually passed away last year, and my uncle Shelby, who passed away a long time ago. And um, they had met after the war and were madly in love. Shelby was a little older, and he had this... Um, what I understood to be a routine surgery that needed to be done. I can't remember what he had, but he yeah. was nervous about it. Nobody else thought it was going to be a big deal, but he felt nervous about it. So he went to a jeweler. They were in Arkansas. So he went to some jeweler in Batesville and he bought Ernestine this, uh, this gold necklace with diamonds around it and had this engraving that said, I will love you always, Shelby. And he gave them very detailed instructions to deliver it to her on Christmas Eve that year. And this mm. was in July, you know. Whoa. So he goes in for this procedure and he ends up getting an infection and dying. And so, um, so then Christmas Eve comes and the jeweler shows up on her door with this kind of message from the dad, from my uncle Shelby and this card and everything else and the engraved necklace. And I always just thought that was so lovely that, you know, he just, he kind of knew ahead of time, like, well, if all goes to hell, I got to make sure I, I'm taking care of her. You know, that wow. she will ever. So, um, wow, so yeah. what a story. I know. So, yeah, that, that was very inspiring to me and, uh, and so sweet. You know, I just love that. And Ernestine and Shelby's daughter uh, got to hear it this year when I released it. And she just, she loves the song. And so we, we started talking on Facebook and I'm like, I don't know if you have it, but I would love to see the necklace. And she huh. sent me like a picture of the necklace to see, oh. you know, I'm like, ah, oh, this is just such cool trivia and so neat to be able to share that experience with them. And, you know. Wow. What a yeah. cool story. Yeah. And yeah, it comes yeah. through in the song, the vibe. I don't think you know exactly what it was that he captured and brought back, but you can tell that there's this sort of from the other side. I was going for a Marvin Gaye vibe. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Just Trust kidding. me. <laughs> you don't want to go there. No. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, it's. So you're inspired by obviously Irish heritage. Yes. That's very apparent in your music. We go back, you and I, to Don't Call Us Tori, mm -hmm. when you were in a band called Riddle the Sphinx. Yeah. And so I've known you musically for a long, long time. And so tell me more about that palette that you use when you write, because it's beautifully done, especially the single is so 
hauntingly gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because, as you said, you know, you and Shannon produced a show called Don't Call Us Tori, and it was a little tongue-in-cheek for all of the female singer-songwriters in L.A. at the time. And Tori was, of course, immensely popular for keyboard players and an inspiration. Tori Amos. She yeah. you know, had her own sound and her, you know, and and if you look back at Tori Amos's career, she had some hits and she had some misses. And before she kind of found her soul and her sound, you know, I think she had like a heavy metal act or some really weird stuff that I've seen, you know, in the past. I could go, ironically picture that. I haven't oh heard it, God. but it's I could hysterical. see she's pretty metal. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, it just, it felt contrived for her, you know, and Tori grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. I think her father was a preacher. So, you know, I think that some of the sounds are inspired by, you know, hymns and church music, of course, and, and large choruses and choirs and things like that. But then there's, um, on my side, there's also the Celtic background of, you know, Scots-Irish and those ballads and those impassioned love songs and death songs are always mm-hmm. something that I've been very drawn to. So, so yeah, Riddle the Sphinx. And then later my own stuff was just an amalgamation of all of the different styles of music that I was exposed to. But a lot of that is so entrenched in you when you're growing up in the church or growing up with a certain style of music really ingrained. So yeah, I would say there's a lot of similarities there. There's a, yeah, I I got back in touch, I don't know, maybe a year ago with, if you remember Killarney Star from the old Don't Call Us Tory days, but I, uh, Killarney, I got to see her. She was fantastic. Pandemic, yeah. Yeah, she really is. And she's doing a lot of stuff on Instagram lately and trying to release some new music too. Yeah, we had quite a few coming through. I mean, the idea was that at the time, The problem that a lot of female singer-songwriters had was that there wasn't exactly a good genre classification for the style of music that y'all did, but it was very prevalent or influential, especially around the time of Lilith Fair and Sarah Mm -hmm. McLachlan and Tori Amos, of course. And so in the Music Connection reviews, they would always compare like your act to Tori Amos because you were a... Mezzo soprano who played piano. <laughs> yeah. 100%. So, and happened to be a redhead. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you didn't sound exactly or anything like Tori Amos per se, other than those two things, there wasn't a lot of um, vocabulary in yeah. those reviews. So it was kind of our playful homage to, we don't know how to name this genre showcase that we'd like <laughs> to do, but we should all get together and play all-female music showcase. So that was when I met Shannon Hurley. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like, well, what should I do to promote my music? I was like, get other people who sound like you together and make a party out of it, basically. Yeah. So we had fun. I think we ran that for like four or five years, was that? We had some really good shows and people really liked the music. Yeah, and there was a built-in audience that would come back for every single show because they knew what they were getting. They were getting talented female singer-songwriters that were doing really cool, interesting things. And I mean, you get wide variety within that, you know. Some of them play guitar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, it was actually cool because we did, and we had some full bands. We had some very, like, not rockabilly, but country-influenced people. And we had some people who did, like, Irish, like what you did. And mm-hmm. um, there was a good spread of real good talent. I mean, probably one of my all-time favorites was Libby Schrader. 
Oh, yeah. Libby's Libby wonderful. was phenomenal. Yeah. And so we, and we also had a religious degree, and uh, I think she has a doctorate now in uh, some form of biblical studies and went back and did her master thesis on Mary Magdalene. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you've talked to her in years. I met her for coffee a couple years ago and uh, was just fascinated by what she's been up to. And yeah. I ran into her at South by in 2012, and she told me the story of why she wrote the Magdalene album. Yeah. And it was just mind blowing and that she would change her whole life course for that. I mean, I'd love to have her on the show to talk about it because it's fascinating. Oh yeah. But yeah. She was great. And then um I believe one time the woman who wrote the song Wendy, everyone knows it's Wendy. Huh. From the sixties came through and actually did uh I gosh, I wish I knew her name right now. But um, how cool is that? I don't yeah, know. So we had it. some we had some <laughs> really stellar artists come through and of course, you, you're a regular um, at the showcase as well. And I mean, I think that was just it. It was like trying to use the mold to break the mold yeah. in a sense. Like it was just a lot of fun and it, it was. was good music and good hang, you know, good, good people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just people that we've maintained friendships with over the years and, you know, people like Shannon and Marina V and, you know, just, I mean, I think Jilly Moon even played and, you know, I, I wouldn't uh, describe Jilly. her as a Tori Amos at all, but, you know, she just has this, you know, spitfire piano fun vibe and amazing you know. performance art. Like oh, I would yeah. call her musical performance art. Yes, absolutely. When she'd be playing, you'd just be wrapped with like, what's she gonna do next? Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Just fun to fun to be still. We had a we had a monthly uh, residency together for years, and yeah, I just I would always stop and just watch her entire set because it was just visually stimulating and interesting and just always fun. Yeah, to go back to the idea of what Tori did, it's like what she can do with a piano. Mm-hmm. blows my mind like getting the sounds yeah. out of that and I it was kind of hit me while I was listening to your single um I don't know if you feel this way but like to me every piano that I sit down at mm-hmm. it's like it has its own soul yeah absolutely they're all different and they want you to play them different like yeah. depending on which piano and how it sounds right <laughs> That's very true. And Tori would, you know, she would record on these old beat up, you know, monstrosities or on a Rhodes or on a, you know, on a beautiful Bosendorfer and, you know, all these different styles, but she would play them differently depending on the piano. And uh, yeah, I was, um, I was at my parents' house celebrating my dad's uh, 85th birthday yesterday. And, and I always go back and I, I play my childhood piano because it's just got a special voice and it's in a special room with special acoustics and there's there's no other place I'd rather play. Um, mm. You know, that's just, that's home. So, yeah, I, I just, I want to linger there for a minute because <laughs> I don't know for you, but for me, like, that's what got me into music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it... I think there's just these moments where, you know, if I look back at seeing Annie on stage or hearing Marvel Jensen play an organ concert, you know, there were moments in both of those shows, I'm sure, where the artists were tapping into the soul of their instruments. 
you know, and, and that's what's memorable about a performance. And, you know, it, it latches on to, I mean, there's many people can play the same instrument and play it poorly or not tap into that, (laughs) you know? Um, But I think for certain musicians, there are instruments that are more kindred spirits to them and they can, they can kind of help that voice escape. Um, Yeah. Or the opposite, what I've had happen is I don't play guitar, but I've picked up certain guitars mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I could play. I mean, it wasn't (laughs) much, but it was something like, I can't, what am I, whoa, where's this coming from? Yeah, that definitely doesn't happen to me. I'm no, I'm no good on guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I did try to play a ukulele song once during the dinner with the Kinneys uh, stuff, and it was funny because I had burned the hell out of my hand, my um, my oh. left hand that night, and that was my chord hand. Um, and I was so I was I was just committed, like, well, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to play this damn song in the ukulele, and it was mm-hmm. hard enough for me to get the chords before I had burned the hell out of my fingers (laughs) I burned them and was still trying to make the chords and I'm like all right I did it (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure if you played Iz's ukulele yeah then maybe something magical would happen it may not actually sound like Hawaiian music or chords or anything technical but I'm Mm -hmm. sure something would come out Yeah, absolutely. I mean, instruments do have a personality and a life, you know, and yeah, that's what the artist makes of it. But yeah, absolutely. My husband asked me the other night because we uh, had written a book and we were trying to write each other's bios just as an exercise. (laughs) And um, and he's like, well, what what actually made you want to be a musician? And I said, I think every musician will tell you there's, it's not a choice. Like you just have to do it. Um, you know, it, it calls to you, um, in a really deep, meaningful way where that is what you do, you know? Yes. So, yeah. I mean, the people that feel that way and understand it know like, yep, I'm a musician. You can call me an attorney. You can call me a lot of things and and I am all of those things, but you know, in my heart, I am always a musician and I've kind of built a life around that where I help other artists and I learn other things and find ways to give back to my community or to be of service to them, you know, but yeah, at the heart of it, I'm a musician because I have to be a musician. (laughs) There's just something ingrained in me. Yeah. Well, gosh, you just offered me the most excellent segue and then i heard a tangent i'm like no (laughs) so you know i i will ask you about the hearts giving hope charity and if that's something that you still do um but i can't i can't because we haven't talked about your husband so you just said you wrote each other's bio so (laughs) what did that what did that sound like for mr sean kinney (laughs) Well, I can never do his justice because he literally knows everything about everything. Like he's just, he is a master of so much. Um, I mean, first of all, I have to say your husband is a clown. He is. Yeah. And and, and I don't mean that in the colloquial way. (laughs) 
<laughs> he is a literal clown. <laughs> yeah, he, he. I mean, he hasn't done that in years, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, he was he was a professional Hollywood clown. It's funny. One of our friends um, that did the clown circuit with him back in the day wrote a book called Hollywood Clown. Um, it was all these stories, but they both kind of lived the same path. Jason just put it down in book form, but you know, these obscure things like Jason's book opens up where he's, he's in a full, um, uh, he was wearing, um, Oh, what the hell do you call them? You know, when you're completely charactered up, I don't know what those, what those are called right now, but you know, he, he's charactered up and some, some, outfit where the head the whole thing and he's playing peekaboo with robert de niro for his son's birthday and no way and he's inside the the thing going this is the most ridiculous amazing thing nobody would ever believe and robert de niro's like <laughs> peekaboo you know <laughs> and, and so jason read this book but i mean sean has all those same stories but but Sean's path was different I mean he is a clown but he's you know he's a filmmaker at heart and you know he grew up just adoring Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin right. and all this silent film era you know people that could make people laugh you know he got up on stage when he was seven years old and got this standing ovation and was immediately hooked in that wow. you know that energy exchange of making people laugh um giving back to them and then getting that you know that admiration and return that you get from the audience when they appreciate a good performance and so um made it his life's path to make people laugh and to help people find their passion, you know? And so he's really, he's a muse for so many people. And he really, he's a big advocate of, uh, read the effing manual, you know? And, and so he, <laughs> he learn everything about everything about everything and mm. throw himself into it. And so people constantly need help on stuff and Sean will come up with, I mean, it could be anything. It could be like a mechanical issue. He's like, oh, I read about that and da, 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 da. But he's constantly helping people. We have this, this little joke where, um, uh, you know, he, he his, uh, his business card is hero at large because that's hmm. kind of his title. He just, he helps people. And, you know, and so, I mean, he, I he's been he, uh, on numerous films have credited him hero at large because they'll ask him, well, I don't know, you did like 20 things on this film. How would you like us to credit you? Hero at large, uh, fine. You know, and so they do. And um, it's very cute. But, you know, we got into this thing where I was like, we should we should have a hashtag for you called everyday hero, because every single day something would come up and he would help somebody on the street. And I'm like, I'm going to start taking pictures and hashtagging. And I always <laughs> miss it. Every single time I miss it, like he, he saved a dog that was like stranded in the street and he got a little, <laughs> somebody like saved this dog. And, you know, and so now I do the Jim and Pam from the office where I just do the mental picture, like the click. And <laughs> <laughs> we do that all the time because he does, he just, he jumps in and he helps people. Um, That's amazing. Loves making people laugh, and he loves making film and art, and so, um, so yeah, we. And he's a consultant together. to independent filmmakers, right? He so is, yeah. He absolutely. does that hero at large thing for hire if you need a jack of all film knowledge, and I happens to I can ask my lawyer wife if I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a film fixer. He knows every. I mean 
grew up, you know, he worked with Roger Corman figuring, you know, this is going to be a, you know, throw me into the deep side of the, of the ocean, um, and get my feet really, really wet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> did, did the Corman stint like so many have, you know, did, a lot of people you know, yeah. got their break doing yeah. very, very bad C minus movies with yeah. Roger. <laughs> <laughs> for very, I don't think I think C minus is being generous. Yes, probably would not have abided by AB five rules, but uh... no, or <laughs> or basic sanitation <laughs> rules, or yeah, <laughs> but Safety, uh, yeah, but yeah, don't I tell mean, OSHA learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, or, yes, and what to do and what not to do. <laughs> yeah, and he and he grew up loving stunts because of the Buster Keaton aspect, but his stunt style is again making people laugh, you know, and he's he considers himself a physical comic. So the clown thing ties into that, the physical comic with the stunts, you know, if you need something um that's dangerous but funny, you know, that's that's his thing. He loves that, you know. Um Well, you know, that was my favorite when worlds collide moment. When yeah. he called my dad to do the most, <laughs> wait, the longest fire burn while jump roping for the uh, Guinness no, Book of World. Oh, now we got to do the jump rope. Oh. Um, no, it was while doing jumping jacks while on fire. Um, and yeah. He, and he did. And he holds the world record for that. And like literally you guys came over and yep. I was like, what are you? what are you doing here? Like, it wasn't for music. <laughs> we did that because every birthday, you know, uh, barring the, this year was a little bit phoned in for the pandemic, but usually we try and figure out, you know, these grand things and we were, we were running out of stuff, you know? And so I was like, well, let's look at the second round bucket list. Cause he had completed his bucket list years ago and, and got wow. really depressed when he first completed it. And I'm like, write another bucket list. And he's like, Oh, you know, and <laughs> so he did that <laughs> and made harder things. I'm like, make it harder. <laughs> That's so, like totally first world problems. Like, right. I'm sorry. Um, I completed my first bucket list and now I'm <laughs> depressed. <laughs> and I know he's laughing at this right now, listening to this too. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, so. So yeah, he. Uh, How do you put up with it? <laughs> oh, God, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. You guys are like the power couple. I seriously, I admire you two because you guys are such. You are so in love and yeah. so good together. It's and, and we. Just, I don't know how you put up with him is because you love him so much. It's incredible. He he had like uh, there were things on the bucket list where we're like, okay, he wants to be knighted. And so, like, we did the research and found, like, one of those knighthoods in Scotland, you know, where he, you know, and so I got him, like, a lordship and, like, a knightship and sea land or, what, you know, one of those things. Oh, my. And then we figured for the world record, we would do this thing and called up your dad, and he was amazing, and uh, <laughs> Hunter helped out, and yeah, but, um, yeah, so he has a little world record the plaque on my piano. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> like you do. <laughs> well, and you're not too bad yourself. You run your own law firm and you, <laughs> like like I was getting at before, you also have a charity. I right? do. Yes. And um, yeah, that's a, uh, so I started that with my sister in I think 2002 and we've been going strong ever since, but kept it grassroots. We just, our main goal with that was we 
I loved doing music stuff and working with kids. She loved doing visual arts things and working with kids. And we thought, well, why don't we marry the two and provide music and visual arts programs to at-risk youth, but free of charge. And and so cool. we can, you know, go into the inner cities and we can do drum circles or we can do art programs. And so we, you know, I mean, for a long time, I was at every single event, you know, until we got big enough that I could say, okay, I can't be at this one, but I'm still almost at every event. You know, we've, we've wow. kept it manageable. We've kept it where nobody takes a salary. We pay, you know, wow. the, the music therapist or the drum circle moderators and we pay for crafts or, you know, actual expenses, but it's a hundred percent give back type charity. And Unbelievable. We, you know, the goal is to give kids these opportunities and, you know, until they, um, were outsourced completely, um, you know, there was a live-in, uh, facility for children of the night, which we were working with. That was, um, mm. they had, um, rescued, um, people from child prostitution. So they oh. had a all female facility and we would go in and do drum circles with them for a while. Um, wow. those were very magical. There were times where you didn't feel like you were being of service at all or helping, but then somebody would just come up to you and, you, you know, like the person that was the problem child of the drum circle that you were like, they don't get it. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? You know, and your head starts going, you know, and you know, that person would be the one that came up and said, sorry, I had such a headache tonight and didn't mean to be problematic, but this really helped me, you know, or so, someone you wow. didn't think you got through to that would just be like, wow, that, that was really magical. And, um, oh, you know, amazing. Yeah. There were so many of those moments there in particular that were like that, where I'm like, yeah, you can you can feel the energy shifting in this room, wow. um, in a really special way, and we work well, with. Well, that's the power well, of music. It is. It, it's so it is. incredible. Yeah, and sometimes you know, some of the kids we've worked with will you know have an attitude at first or not be interested, but it, it's very surface. You know, you can't can't always take that as what's actually going on for them. Sometimes there's a looking cool or, you know, pretending game going on. But but by the end of it, there's always a positive shift. Um, and it is. It's really, really, really cool. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're still doing that. And we're trying to figure out in the midst of a pandemic how we can do things. Um, we've got a few of the places that we work with where some of the kids are just exceptional artists. And so um, mm. so we have a community give back kind of thing because, you know, they're used to um, people giving back to them like a charity case almost, you know, mm, for some right. of it's kind of a stigma. So we allow them to give back to their own community and, you know, make holiday cards for old folks homes or, you know, wh wherever wow. it, the case may be. We do that a lot. And so um, so some of the artists are still making cards that we can just scan and do electronic cards this year, things like that. Been looking at doing draw alongs. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's always something to do. And yeah, that's been something I've definitely been giving a lot of thought to this year, because mm -hmm. as we talked about, you know, <clears throat> there's just a dearth of art and we can't do in-person things right now. So, right. um, so yeah, trying to figure all of that out. Well, that's a profound concept that you just mentioned is that 
sometimes the healing is in the giving back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, to me, that's that's a really meaningful part of the process. I mean, you're trying to teach people how to be, you know, positive role models, how to express themselves and hopefully how to be great members of their community as adults. And I think a big part of that is learning how to give back and how to be of service to others. And that's something that's usually missing for people that um, are receiving the charitable end of something. Um, Mm -hmm. Is you know, and then some of them, it, it gets almost ridiculous where they're like, okay, we had a drum circle on Tuesday and we get this on Wednesday and we get this thing on Thursday and then there's a dance trip coming on Friday. And, you know, like this overload of Mm. positivity that they're just like, all right, well, whatever. And (laughs) not really getting through to anything. Um, You know, and we come in and say, hey, there's this group of people that need help. And, you know, we thought it would be really cool to do this and we'd like your help in doing it. Um, You know, and some of them do extraordinary, extraordinary cards where they've really put some time and energy and effort into making it uh, personal and meaningful. And we used Mm. to do them as individualized cards. So, you know, we'd be doing hundreds and hundreds of them. you know, and now we just kind of take the best of and scan them and give different ones away um, that way. But uh, hmm. yeah, it's just, it's a cool concept, you know. So you're an everyday hero as well. <laughs> Hashtag everyday hero too. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I'm so glad to know you. <laughs> I still don't know how you do all this stuff. Yeah. And still have time to be a mom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, what? Actually, how? What? Tell me, tell everyone the secret, because I don't know. Like, do you sleep? Yeah, I definitely sleep. I make the kids sleep, too, so I don't have to multitask there. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've tried to live without sleep and found that it's uh, very counterproductive. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah. You heard it here first, Christiane Cargill's secret. Yeah. Sleep. <laughs> Don't sleep. <laughs> Add an hour to your day. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think there's a secret. I think you commit to certain things and then you have to prioritize and find a way to make everything work together. And, you know, a lot of it's time management and, you know, these basic things, but, um, but, you know, I definitely prioritize our family and our children and, um, you know, they have hours of the day where they're in school. And then when they're not, we try and give them their attention unless we're on a uh, podcast. Uh, I know (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, yeah, I told him beforehand, I'm like, mommy's going to be out of the loop for a little bit. You know, one already (laughs) came in to uh, borrow my tiara celtic crown she was just like she, she walked in the door and she just put like her finger up like shh and then grabbed my celtic tiara and left <laughs> so that's amazing what's happening. <laughs> at least they're at the age where they can do that and understand that i think that's a big part of it because we were like yeah. out of the woods with our kid who was we had one kid who was you know getting to the five six school age whatever things yeah. were getting so easy and then we had a baby yeah. <laughs> and now yeah. we have a two-year-old running around the house just tearing things up and it's like impossible to like think straight. 
Yeah. Let alone. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. But (laughs) I don't know. I think it's a testament to your personal power and, you know, how obviously madly in love you and your husband are just being able to work together the way that you do and manage all this, you know, film this and law firm that and music and, you know, when you were playing and obviously podcasts. And, you know, I want to thank you for making this time a priority and for coming onto the show. It's an like, I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time. So I'm glad that we finally kind of synced up on that, that two weeks that for both of us ended up being what, three months like oh dang life happened and yeah shoot <laughs> but you 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 texted me i i kid you not like i don't remember how this worked but i literally had said to my virtual assistant hey i'd like to call chris to get her on a podcast because i think it's just going to be a lot of fun and it's going to help me get back into podcasting regularly and yeah. then you texted me said happy birthday whatever oh by the way <laughs> we should do that podcast i'm just like okay well that's just how it works now all right. Well, it's funny because I had looked back at our text history when I texted you and said, oh, that's funny. We were texting back in April about doing this podcast, and I guess we dropped the ball there. <laughs> I just had the most crazy, outlandish amount of just almost comical, in retrospect, amount of things happen to me that that's just perfect timing now. So thank you again for making this time. And where can people find you as a lawyer, as a musician, uh, and your charity, um, yeah, there's lots and on your websites, socials, lots and lots of websites coming up. Let's see. <laughs> so for law, you can find me at c So it's c k i n n e y l a w dot com. Um, for music, you can go to christiane which is C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-E-K-I-N-N-E-Y.com. Also, RiddleTheSphinx.com. And those are all linked together, I think. We'll also Uh, include these in the show notes. A lot of my social is under Musical Redhead. Oh, good. Yeah. And, oh, HeartsGivingHopeFoundation.org is the charity. Fantastic. All right. Well, oh my gosh, this was, this time just flew by and this was amazing. Well, you know, maybe when all this is over, we'll finally do that. Don't call a story reunion. We've been talking about. I would love that. That would be so fun. As a house concert, because house concerts and don't call a story had existed simultaneously. I think that, yeah. that house would have been the way. At David Peter's house. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. We won't, he doesn't need to know. We'll just show up. We'll just show up. <laughs> Deal. Awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Christiane, thanks for being on the Language of Creativity podcast. And until we crash David Peter's house to do a <laughs> Don't Call Us Tory concert, I will talk to you soon. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Thanks All right. so much. Special thanks to Jessica Skyfeld for all the research on this episode's show notes. I put together some ridiculously detailed show notes, probably more than anyone reads, but I think they're valuable. Please check them out. 
And if you get a chance, we need some reviews on iTunes. So if you like our show, leave a review. Thanks for tuning in, and there's a lot more coming. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity podcast.